know, we were sitting earlier and I began to give the instructions. And I said, uh, um, you could feel the breath coming in and out and let your attention rest in that sense of the breath coming in and out. And um, that the the very uh, rhythmic um, reliability of the breath it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes turns out to have a calming effect on the whole physiology it does and the truth is that knitting has a whole calming effect on the physiology it does rhythmic things just do like when you sit at the side of a of an ocean and the waves come in and out and you hear them in a rhythmic pattern there's something that happens physiologically that's calming you know when you stroke somebody who's all upset and you, and you take a baby and you massage it or you pat it down its back in a rhythmic way and then it gets to kind of feel the rhythm and it gets into it and it begins to relax and you keep going and then you stop and it says more you know because there's something that's calming about that and then I said and I amended it in my own mind as soon as we began to uh, sit I said this is not about calming down it's about really being able to see clearly. And you remember just before I left on this trip was that experience of the miners that were tripped, trapped in that coal mine and uh, how their thoughts were really immediately that they were not going to die that minute, thinking about the folks that they were dear to, uh, were dear to them on the outside and making plans about how they would be reassured lest they died, that they would tie themselves all together. You remember that? They said the first thing we did was we tied ourselves together so that if they drowned, they would not have the extra problem of looking for our individual bodies. Here they are in such jeopardy and thinking about what will make the surviving people feel more comfortable. And it was so clear to me at that point that when our mind is clear, we make decisions on behalf of the well-being of other people, not ourselves. And they were certainly not calm. I mean, when I think about it, even now, 50 degrees, wet, dark, locked in a cave, 180, 280 feet under the ground. So I was thinking at the time, you don't have to be calm, you just have to be clear. But I thought this morning, as just after I said this, this is not about calm, this is about clear, it's about being able to see clearly so that we can decide what is the appropriate thing to do now in response. I thought, I'll go back again and I'll say calm is an important part of it. can see clearly sometimes when you're not calm, as the miners were able to. Sometimes when people uh, report uh, having survived an accident and they say, my car got hit, and all of a sudden, I was careening all over the highway. But I knew how to go this way, this way, this way, this way. I had peripheral vision. It was as if I could see 360 degrees all the way around. <clears throat> all of a sudden, I was quite clear. Turn this way, this way. How to how to uh, put my foot on the brake and not swerve the car? Do you remember I I told you a story? It's it's uh, it it showed up in the book. Remember the story I told you probably quite a number of times by the time I knew how I wanted to tell it about the man who had been um, uh, held up by an assailant in an alley. Do you remember that story? 
Anyway, the short of the story, and I, maybe I'll read it at another time, was that a man told me about uh, having been held up at gunpoint in, an, uh, uh, in a narrow street on his way home late at night. And he said, you know, I shouldn't have been by myself late at night in the street. Uh, but someone held him up who was clearly very, very um, confused on drugs and had a gun at his chest and was menacing him. I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And uh, said, give me your wallet. He gave him his wallet right away. And he said, he said, this is it. So it was of no consequence to him that the wallet had a tremendous amount of money in it. He said, for some reason, I had a lot of cash that night. I had $700 in my wallet. But, you know, that was nothing. I just gave him the wallet. And then he said, he had the gun still at my chest. And he said, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. And his eyes were wild. And he looked like he was warming up to be able to kill me. And I was terrified. And I said, stop. And he stopped. I said, look, I'm going to give you my watch. Here's my watch. This is a wonderful watch. This is a very expensive watch. Here's this watch. Now you have the watch. The president took the watch and then put the gun back. He said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. He said, and I was absolutely terrified. And I said, wait. And he stopped. And I had nothing to give him. So I said, listen to me. You did great. You did wonderful. You have no idea. How much money there is in that wallet? There's a great deal of money in that wallet. You did great. And that watch is a wonderful watch. It's a very expensive watch. When you go home and you show your friends what's in that wallet, and you show them that watch, they're going to be very proud of you. You did great. Now go home. <laughs> and he says, the person turned around and left. <laughs> It's a whole other end of the story that I'm not going to tell you right now. James says, phew. But doesn't it get you? I mean, phew. Now, it gets me. And even the, the, this, the, in the book, I've called him Brett. When Brett told me that story, and he told me that, I got frightened. And he was sitting right in front of me, telling me the story. So I knew, and he told me the story happened four years ago. So here he is, alive and well. And still, the story is terrifying. And I said to him, How to, first of all, I was very touched that um, it seems to me, it seemed to me clear in that moment that when there's no shred of what seems like human apparatus left in a person, you know, all the channels for broadcasting or receiving are so warped by drugs, there's really just a fragment of a real person in there that the words that connect Oh, you did great. You did wonderful. What a good job. You think you say that to a two-year-old when it cleans up after itself. You say, good job. You know, and then, what a good job is such a comforting word. You did well. You did great. You did fine. Just makes people relax because they don't feel jeopardized. They come back to themselves. What if everybody turned around the whole world and said, you look, you're doing fine. You're great. Terrific. Now go home. And everybody went home. That would be good. (laughs) 
So I, I, I got around to that because I was talking about you don't really need to be calm. And oh, that was the second part. I said, how did you know to say that? And he said, I don't know. He said, I was absolutely terrified, but it's what came out of me. And I'd like to think that when we are absolutely terrified, but absolutely awake, you know, this is the last moment, I might die right now, that what saves us in that moment, which comes from we don't even know where, is what connects us to the other person rather than what distances us. It's a moment of connection. You did great means you move closer to the person, not further away. It means you're my friend, not my enemy. If we wanted to be romantic about it, it would be a, a meta-statement. I care about you. You're okay. I let you into my heart. Fundamentally, I think that needs to be the move. Oh, I know what I was going to tell you yesterday about calming down. Calming down is a good component of it. I wanted to make that point that you don't have to be calm to see clearly, but calm is calm is a good component of seeing clearly. And when we calm down, we see more clearly. And tell you, I'll tell you the end of the breath story, and I'll tell you the story of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment yesterday. They phoned because I'm going to go talk there on Sunday night, and uh, often we've been back and forth and. Months before, you know, when something when when something happens, it got planned six months before at least, and then there was a lot of email back and forth about what's the name of your talk and what do you want us to call it and how do you want us to write your bio and all of that back and forth, and we'd done that months ago and I got a beautiful brochure from them and it's happening Sunday night, and I got a phone call from them yesterday and they said uh, we're just calling to check on last minute arrangements. Uh, we'll uh, set aside a room for you to rest in after your drive before you start. We'll put a bowl of fruit out for you. What else would you like? And crackers. Uh, uh, what else would you like? I said, I, I, I didn't say this, but that's that's unusual to have all that. So I, I said, really, I don't need very much. Uh, how about a cup of tea? They said, uh, Fine, fine. They said, what kind of tea would you like? <laughs> um, and then they said, on, uh, when, you, uh, when you give the talk, there'll be a table next to you, and it'll have some flowers on it, and it'll have enough room for you to put your book down on, and it will have some water for you. Do you want cold water, or room temperature <laughs> water, or warm water? Because um, apparently some people like warm water. It's good for their throats while they're speaking. So I said, I hadn't thought about it. <laughs> Water would be great. <laughs> and I said, I feel so honored by, I mean, this, this is a very big fuss. Thank you very much. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to feel warm and comfortable and, uh, and uh, at home. And I thought to myself that, first of all, it's a very wonderful, sweet thing. And there's a very wonderful center for spiritual enlightenment. I mean, so they have all kinds of wonderful programs. But also, what, that's the other piece of um, when, we, when we provide circumstances for people so that they will feel at home, it's for their benefit and for ours as well, because they would like for me to teach well. You know, when, you come here, when I come here on Wednesday morning and there's my one and a half Zafus set up here, I feel great, because you know, I remember that Sandy knows 
that I can't manage one Zafu anymore. I need one and a half. So I feel like she thought about that it was me who was coming and how many I need. And when Jack comes, he gets another Zafu. But it means somebody thought about you. That little moment of the heart picks up. So these have been a couple of hard weeks of uh, teaching because the news in the world is very bad. All over the place, the news is bad. And what I have been trying to do, been teaching with one image. Ah, I told you I was going to. I was going to tell you the other half of the breath story, and I left it in the air. Maybe it is better to tell it in a little while. So at a quarter of eleven, if I haven't told it yet, somebody remind me because it'll be a good end. You want to hear the end of the story because that was only the beginning. It's not right to leave it. That's a good enough story just as it is, but it actually has a good end. But this is the middle of the story. Because I really wanted to talk about how hard it is to keep your heart, how hard it is for me to keep my heart in a loving place. I've been saying all over the place, when people say, what's your practice? I go here and there and teach. And often people are interested in, uh, they, they might ask a question, like, what is your spiritual practice? And I think that, um, I think that uh, often it's motivated by uh, a, 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 a question that people have about the fact that I have two religious lineages that nourish my soul, and uh, they want me to say I'm a this or I'm a that, or I'm a this and a that, uh, or a that, or something. And I, and I really want to avoid the this or a that, and I also want to, I, I want to say the answer this way. In the beginning when I started saying it, I thought maybe it was a little contrived, but I'm more and more convinced that it's absolutely true. I say I'm trying to keep my mind clear and my heart open, that that is my spiritual practice. Towards that end, I have a meditation practice, I have a prayer practice, I have a study practice, I have a community practice, I have several communities, I have a relationship practice, I have a parenting practice, I have a grandparenting practice, I have a teaching practice, I have a writing practice, I have an emailing practice, I have a friendship practice, and in truth, there's no part of my whole life that is exempt from the practice of trying to keep my mind clear and my heart open. No moment that doesn't come up to being worthwhile for keeping your mind clear. You don't say, well, now from three to four in the afternoon today, everything goes, confusion. Who would want that? <laughs> and I really actually think it requires more than 24 hours a day to keep your mind clear and your heart open. It's very hard. Should I tell you a sweet, sweet story? Because it has to do with the book. Maybe I'll tell you, well, I've already started, so I'll tell it to you now about mind clear and heart open. It's tremendously hard not to get caught in self-serving. And uh, uh, my daughter said, my daughter Liz said, I could tell you this story. Uh, the book is just out. It's about three weeks old, maybe. And I'm, I'm so proud of it. And I gave it to all my children, who are all adults, all of them more than 40 years old. So I gave it all, to, I gave them books, and I waited a few days. and. Then I, I called Liz, and I said, Liz, what do you think of the book? And uh, she said, Mom, it's great. She said, it's really wonderful. It's just so you. It sounds just like you. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. She said, I was reading it along. She said, I had such complete 
joy and pride, and I felt wonderful about you. And she was having such a good time. She said, then all of a sudden I was up to page 60, and I suddenly realized that you had already mentioned Emmy twice, and you mentioned Colin four times already, <laughs> and you didn't mention me so far. So then I was rifling through the back of the book to see if I could find my name somewhere in there. I said, could I tell that story? She said, sure. I said, do I have to disguise who you were? She said, no. She said, it's the truth, you know. <laughs> that right away, you know, that we're in complete mudita, complete unalloyed joy. The person you love the most, or a person that you love very much, has done something good. You're in the middle of enjoying it. All of a sudden, you think, hey, where am I? And, you know, and what motivates it, actually, if you look, I tell you such a simple story. Because what motivates it, actually, is a visceral fear. Loves those other people more than she loves me, is really what's under there. It's, you know, and he can be 40-something years old. And on some level, we are all strung on, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. The whole life, it's good, it's not good, it's good, it's not good, who's in, who's out. <laughs> I was at a wedding <laughs> while I was back east. A friend of mine was married. He has a wonderful good fortune of having a... Uh, he is 50. His mother is 75. His grandmother, who was there, is 99. And his grandmother's sister is 101. And they were all there. The two brothers of these old women, equally old, lived in very distant places and couldn't be there. But I'm sure they have some extraordinary gene. Actually, they're being studied by genetic studies um, researchers. Because these old women walk and talk and think and hear and remember and uh, all the things, and see. And I mean, they do all those things that old folks don't. And uh, talking to them, I was having dinner sitting next to the 101 year old one, telling me about it. She lives in New York City. and. Uh, uh, her sister lives in uh, rural Connecticut. She, I said, you see your sister much? She said, well, I go visit her from time to time. She said, but I can't stay there, stay there long. It's so boring in the country. I don't know what she does there. I like it in the city. There are things going on. You can go to things. Your mind stays alive. I thought to myself, there is no end to sibling rivalry where you have to find <laughs> something that your person yeah, that your sibling, that you, you are going to the arts and the museum while my country mouse sister is sitting in rural Connecticut. <laughs> There's no end in a comparison. The mind does that. It, it, you know, it's looking for ways to exalt itself. It's just because we're so frightenable. We want to assure ourselves that we're all right. We're the best. We're terrific. That's why if other people tell us we're great, we feel good. <laughs> Alas, Abigail, I don't actually think I wrote her name in the book, but I thought about it later. I didn't. But that's what she said, too. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, I tell you that story because I want to tell you that everybody all over the place is the same. Everybody has the same heart. Everybody has the same wishful, I want to be the best loved, and everybody has the same delight. We have capacities as human beings. I've been teaching that as well. I said, you know, the human capacity 
to feel emotions is, I think, what is most extraordinary about human beings. I don't know, maybe cows have special affection for each other and they like one better than the other. Maybe cats and dogs go by each other and tell each other jokes, but I don't know that they do that. I mean, we have no data to show that they keep each other warm. Uh, they sit next to each other, but I don't know whether it's because they like each other or because they just keep each other warm, and that's a, a, a thing that cats and dogs do. But human beings keep each other warm, they tell each other jokes, they laugh, they make art, they sing, they compose. We have that whole part of our mind that appreciates or feels pain. That, that really, I think, is apart from um, other animals, regardless of how noble and wonderful and cute and faithful they might be and helpful in some cases. And we recognize emotions in one another. This was yesterday's paper, and I don't know if you're going to be able to see it from there, but um, I, I picked the paper. The paper is delivered to my house every morning. It's in the mailbox at 5.30. So um, I looked at the paper before I could, uh, I, I even read what had happened. Uh, there's a picture of five old-ish women, or certainly mature women, sitting on a bench. And then if you see the, the, the picture behind it, it's uh, a Siberian city. And uh, there was a glacier that collapsed down off a mountain and fell down off that mountain. And a hundred people got buried in it. All of a sudden. Not, it's not a ski resort where there's sometimes a, 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 there's, a, there's an avalanche and people get killed. It's just a glacier fell down all of a sudden. Things happen in a natural world. And these are five women. And they're just pictures. I, I'll pass it around to you just so you can see the picture. Pictures of people that are bereft. You look at the picture and you know something terrible has happened. You can just tell that by the picture without reading any of the script because they're all in different postures of bereft. And you don't know who of them has a direct relative that's there or who of them doesn't. But in a sense, when I look at the picture, your heart falls down when you look at it. And it's definitely not my direct kin relative. But in the moment that you look at it and you feel moved by it, you realize that everyone is your direct kin. You know, so I was trying to describe to my grandchildren the other day, what does it mean second cousin once removed? I myself don't know what it means second cousin once removed. You know, it's one of those peculiar things, except that you can marry each other or something. But uh, but you have to go through whose great-grandmother is the same great-great-grandmother. What does once removed mean? But in a certain sense, if we thought about it, we are everybody's great-grandmother once, or great-great-great. Just a lot of removed, but in the same, in, in, in the same family. You know, that there's, a, there's a saying of the Buddha where he says in... Um, in the meta-reflections, loving-kindness reflections, reflect on the fact that everyone in the world has been your mother at one time or another in your many incarnations. So that this person is worthy of being loved as if he or she is your mother, because everybody is. So I, there's a way in which I, you know, I don't know about that incarnations business. 
it's it's a it's a very fundamental thought to Buddhism, the idea that uh, uh, the there's something that conditions future lifetimes of future bodies. I don't know about that. I don't know how I if I quite get that. Because my, my sense, I have a very strong sense of karma and that the that every single thing that we do, any one of us, makes a difference in the world forever and ever. But I don't know if it makes a linear difference or whether it just makes a global dis- difference in the whole world. That every moment that any one of us has a thought for peace or a peaceful heart is contributing to the consciousness soup of the world, a moment of peace. It is a prayer for peace. Sometimes I'm somewhere and someone will say, let's have a moment of a prayer for peace. And then they say something. I think, well, this is a prayer for peace with liturgy, or this is a prayer for peace with intention. But every moment that the heart is at ease is in fact making a prayer. May my heart be at ease. May the whole, may this be a contribution to the peace of the world comes out of really when we um, consci- when I consciously think to myself, I could go with this annoyance or I could say, wait a minute, they couldn't help it. This is the way they did it. I could be angry. I am angry as a matter of fact, but maybe there's something more constructive that I can do with that energy. Maybe I can see I am angry. I feel angry because I've been frightened. What can I do to assuage my fear in some way and uh, behave with more uh, and do something to calm my fear and everybody else's? So one of the things I'm frightened about is that it's so easy to sway public opinion. And I'm really afraid of the amount of... Uh, I'm afraid of what is trustworthy or not in the way of news. Someone sent me a list of questions yesterday asking me if I'd like to uh, be interviewed about those questions, and I decided I wouldn't because um, for various reasons. But the questions presumed more than... There were, questions, I, 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 there were too many questions to which I, I, my answer was, I have no idea. Um, one of them was, uh, what do you think is the, cause of main, the main cause of distraction in the world? Well, I don't know. Um, but I think that we are very distractible. And that that's a, that's a cause of worry. I would reframe the whole question. I, uh, I taught with Lawrence Freeman, who's a Benedictine uh, monk, a couple of months ago. It was the first time I'd met him. And I, he said, uh, among other things, one very compelling thing. He said, I think of the... Uh, he's a... Uh, he is speaking out of the Christian tradition, of course. He said, I think of sin, uh, the, the uh, d- uh, definition of sin, as distractedness, distraction. It's the opposite of attention. If you pay attention, if you pay attention, you see clearly, you do something comforting for the world. I'll tell you a, a, a bit of a story. And it's a story in the making, so I don't know how it's going to end yet. So I'm telling this to you because it's unformed thoughts, not quite finished. But it has to do with how things happen. And so uh, here I just told you I get the New York Times every morning and all the news that's fit to print. I more or less trust it because it's got different kinds of editorials from both sides. 
Even so, here's the beginning of the story. I was in Boston last weekend. So I, um, I was in Boston last weekend, and uh, I was at the end of my teaching and uh, stayed over the weekend and had Yom Kippur on Monday in Boston with friends there. And I stayed with other friends of mine at Harvard. Uh, I stayed in Lowell House at Harvard. And two of my friends, women in a partnered relationship, are the masters of Lowell House. Some years ago when they became house masters of Lowell House, it uh, was a newsworthy event in a lot of newspapers because house masters traditionally, since the beginning of Harvard, have always been a professor at Harvard, usually a man, and that person's wife. This is a first same-sex couple to be housemasters at Harvard. So there's a big, you know, went around the world on all the news wires, and then it disappeared off the news wires, and they continue on. And uh, my friend Diana teaches uh, uh, in the religion department. She's actually the department chair, I think. And uh, uh, her and she, Diana's Christian. Her principal area of expertise is uh, Hinduism, for which she has a great deal of respect and an enormous amount of knowledge, and um, very dedicated to the study of and teaching of. Her partner, Dorothy, who also teaches um, religion, professor of religion, and uh, is the Episcopal minister at Memorial Church at Harvard on the campus, has been practicing mindfulness meditation for almost as long as I have. I met her at the Barry Center for at the Inside Meditation Center in Barry probably 20 years ago. I'm fairly sure she was on the board of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. So, and I spent the weekend with them so we had a variety of religious traditions, just in the three of us. <laughs> we could have had an interfaith conference. <laughs> Each of us was an interfaith conference, actually. <laughs> and on Tuesday morning, I had to take a plane to come home. But um, I had time. I had an 11.30 plane. And uh, there's a prayer service at Harvard every single morning in Memorial Church, not in the whole huge church where 100,000 people can get in, but in Appleton Chapel right next to the main church. There's a 15-minute prayer service from 8.45 until 9. It is the oldest continuously running prayer service in the United States. So we got up that morning, and uh, Dorothy went off. She's a minister to conduct services. Diana said, I'm going to church. You want to go with me? You can, we can go from 8.45 to 9. We'll come back. The taxi will come for you at 9.15. You'll go to the airport. Great. So we go to church and walk through the campus. It was the first day of school. And it was very exciting to see all these people coming to classes. And you know that they're all tremendously bright. And I was wondering about whether or not they weren't frightened with the first day of classes. I wonder if you ever get to a point where the first day of classes isn't a, uh-oh, why I won't be smart enough, you know. Everybody I know that went to Harvard actually had a uh-oh feeling when they got there, 
because wherever they were before, they were super students, and then they got there, and uh uh-oh, everybody is. So all of a sudden, so here we go. And I was thinking, how nice that everybody can go to church for 15 minutes before they start. We go into Appleton Chapel. It's quite beautiful. It's a rectangular room, and you walk in in a door that Dorothy is outside with Lawrence Summers, who's the president of the university, and it's going to make a little speech, and they're greeting people as they go in. And we go in, and there's an organ playing quietly, and the door goes in. It's a rectangular room in the middle of one of the sides of this long rectangle. Over on this end, in the middle of one of the short walls, is the kind of high step-in pulpit that's common to Anglican church. And it's up a a couple of steps, so the pulpit is a little bit elevated, maybe as high as this. And then it's a big desk thing, so that the person standing in it is just sticking out this much. And either side of the room, all the way down this rectangular sides, are banked choir stall pews, so that uh, maybe four rows, I think, all together. And probably the whole church holds 50, 60 people, maybe. Uh, multiply by four rows times four, eight rows times uh, 10 people, maybe 80 people, was full. We came in and we got the last two seats in the front pew right next to the pulpit. So I was sitting right there. I tell you that whole story, first of all, because at that point, I'm already thinking, what an extraordinary thing to have the oldest continuously running prayer service in the whole country. And I watch people coming in, and truly, all shapes, all ages, all ethnicities, I thought to myself, this is great. This is really wonderful. And we sit down, and the organ is playing, everybody's quiet. I thought, nice way to start a day. And... Um, uh, Dorothy said whatever welcoming words. I think we sang a hymn. We all got up and sang some hymn together that every single person could sing. Nothing about that hymn that anybody's religious tradition would make them uncomfortable with. And said something, and then Lawrence Summers got up to speak. I wonder, probably I'm fastest reading you to this. It's a five-minute speech. Do you want to hear it? Because it has flashed through the Internet. It's been in the New York Times. And my dismay is about how it was reported in the New York Times and the piece that flared up and made. I speak to you today not as president of the university, but as a concerned member of our community about something I never thought of. I never thought I would become seriously worried about the issue of anti-Semitism. I am Jewish, identified but hardly devout. In my lifetime, anti-Semitism has been remote from my experience My family all left Europe at the beginning of the 20th century. The Holocaust is, for me, a matter of history, not personal memory. To be sure, there were country clubs where I grew up that had few, if any, Jewish members, but not ones that included people I knew. My experience in college and graduate school as a faculty member, as a government official, all involved little notice of my religion. Indeed, I was struck during my years in the Clinton administration that the existence of an economic leadership team with people like Robert Rubin, Alan Greenspan, Charlene Boshevsky, and many others that were, was very heavily Jewish, passed without comment or notice, was something that would have been inconceivable a generation or two ago, as indeed it would have been inconceivable a generation or two ago that Harvard could have a Jewish president. 
Without thinking about it much, I attributed all of this to progress, to an ascendancy of enlightenment and tolerance, a view that prejudice is increasingly put aside, a view that while the politics of the Middle East was enormously complex and contentious, the question of the right to a Jewish state to exist had been settled in the affirmative by the world community. Today I am less complacent, less complacent and less comfortable because there is disturbing evidence of an upturn for anti-Semitism globally and because of some developments closer to home. Consider global events last year. There have been synagogue bombings, physical assaults on Jews, the paintings of swastikas on Jewish memorials in every country in Europe. Observers in many countries have pointed to the worst outbreak of attacks against Jews since the Second World War. Candidates who denied the significance of the Holocaust reached the runoff stage of elections for the nation's highest office in France and Denmark. State-sponsored television stations in many nations of the world spew anti-Zionist propaganda. The United Nations-sponsored World Conference on Racism, while failing to mention human rights abuses in China, Rwanda, and any place in the Arab world, spoke of Israel's policies prior to recent struggles under the Barak government as constituting ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. The NGO uh, declaration at the same conference was even more virulent. I could go on, but I want to bring this closer to home. Of course, academic communities should be and always will be places that allow any viewpoint to be expressed. And certainly there is much to be debated about the Middle East and about much in Israel's foreign policy, defense policy that can and should be vigorously challenged. But where anti-Semitism and views that are profoundly anti-Israeli have traditionally been the primary preserve of poorly educated right-wing populists, profoundly anti-Israel views are increasingly finding support in progressive intellectual communities. Serious and thoughtful people are advocating and taking actions that are anti-Semitic in their effect, if not in their intent. Hundreds of European academies have called for an end to support for Israeli researchers, though not an end to support for researchers from any other nation. Israeli scholars this past spring were forced off the board of an international literary journal. At the same rallies where protesters, many of them university students, condemned the IMF and global capitalism and raised questions about globalization, it's become equally common to lash out at Israel. Indeed, at the anti-IMF rallies last spring, chants were heard equating Hitler and Sharon. Events to raise funds for organizations of questionable political provenance that in some cases were later found to support terrorism have been held by student organizations on this and other campuses with at least modest success and very little criticism. And some here at Harvard and at other universities across the country have called for the university to single out Israel among all nations as the lone country where it is inappropriate for any part of the university's endowment to be invested. I hasten to say the university has categorically rejected this suggestion. We should always respect the academic freedom of everyone to take any position. We should also recall that academic freedom does not include, does not include freedom from criticism. The only antidote to dangerous ideas is strong alternatives vigorously advocated. There are two more sent, uh, um, paragraphs, but they're not really necessary, and I see how time is going to run out. I actually left that 
And they sang a hymn. Everybody sang a hymn. Everybody got a blessing. And uh, as we left, my friend Dorothy introduced me to her friend Layla, one of our very close friends, who is Muslim and a teacher of uh, Middle Eastern thought, professor of Middle Eastern thought at Harvard. And I left in actually quite a high mood. Yeah, I really did. I thought everybody, as far as, just by looking around at the church, I thought to myself, everybody's here. Everybody could sing those hymns. I thought to myself, just, uh, you know, here's, I'm sitting next to Diana, who is a Christian, very, very knowledgeable about Hindu thought. Here am I with my religious traditions. Here is Dorothy, who is the Episcopal minister of this church, a very serious practitioner of mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition. Here is Lawrence Summers, who's the president of the university, who can address, make the opening address in the chapel on the first day of school of the fall semester and say, I'm a Jew, which would have been inconceivable 50 years ago. And, and as we walk out, here is Leila, who is a Muslim, professor of Middle Eastern studies, who is also in church singing the same hymns with us. And I thought, this is a story. This is about how the whole world can come together and in friendliness and in goodwill say the only antidote to right, bigger, there we go. The only antidote to dangerous ideas is strong alternatives vigorously advocated, talked about, brought up. Nothing about punishing people, nothing about blaming, nothing about excluding, nothing about building more barriers. I had I actually left. I, I went to my plane and I wrote the story just as I told it to you. I wrote that story just as I told it to you, more or less, uh, in my journal all the way home, about maybe this is a vision of the world that we're about to come into, where we all can get together. Everybody can go to church together. Actually, Diana was walking me back to the Lowell House to get the cab, and I said, you know, what if all over the world everybody was a five-minute walk from a gathering place in the morning where everybody in that community came in in the morning, sat down for 15 minutes and said, let's bless each other, let's look at each other. Everybody came in and said, listen, what should we worry about? What's, what's, what would be a threat to our community now? And instead of saying who would be, we would say what would be. I actually went away thinking, there's a really wonderful thing that Charles Summers, uh, Lawrence Summers, was talking about the noble tradition of academic freedom where everybody says what their ideas are. And that I thought he was speaking as president of the university and as an advocate of academic freedom. I thought that was what it was about. And I thought that academic freedom was the prototype for democracy where everybody says what's their idea and everybody listens. I thought, wow. I got really all buoyed up. Three days went by, and then the story surfaced in the New York Times. It had probably been carried by the Harvard Crimson the next day about what President Summers had said. And it surfaced only about the part 
of uh, the investments, the last one, about um, the calling for um, the divestment of uh, the universities, uh, that the investments in Israel should be. Apparently there were uh, 600 people at Harvard, faculty and students, that had signed a petition that that amount of endowment. And the Times went and interviewed a whole bunch of those people who then not only said, yes, I signed the petition, but said their view of the situation there. I found the article quite inflammatory and quite one-sided. And I thought, but that wasn't what happened. I thought to myself, I called a few people, and I said, that wasn't what happened. I was there. I heard it. I mean, I was so close to Lawrence Summers when he gave that talk. I could have touched him. I know what he said. That wasn't the point. The point was freedom of ideas, really strongly debated. The point was academic freedom and democracy. That wasn't the point. But it got picked up and carried by the reporter in a certain way. Then this morning I looked, and now there's a letter to the editor from somebody at Harvard who signed that letter, who now has more things to say about it. And the debate has gone off in that direction, again, of partisanship. So wait a minute. The, I, I really understand, I, I think I understand the uh, instinct to partisan. I have it in me, you know? I think, I, I, I wonder that we don't all have it a little bit. When, when you hear something that is dear to you, and you get frightened for it, or that someone or, or who is dear to you does something that causes pain. You feel terrible pain about that as well. So it's not, it's not actually uh, a partisanship that's only a partisanship uh, that, that sees what's right, but a partisanship that picks up, hey, that's people that somehow I am bound to and responsible for. And I keep thinking to myself, this is the place in the discussion where since it's 11, we'll have to leave it and I'll come back to it because I'll tell you what my spiritual dilemma is at this point. I'm thinking to myself about partisanship and the fact that I, I feel, I struggle very much with what happens. As you know, I read you some of the emails from the Middle East, from Israel, some weeks ago when there was a bombing in Gaza. And I feel terribly upset and terribly embarrassed and pained on behalf of what seems like some improvident Israeli action. And it's because I'm, I am, I am, I have particular roots. And the metta sutta and the whole teaching of metta depends on particularity. And this is my spiritual dilemma. It depends on particularity. It says we all start by loving our own very much. It's built into our DNA. And really the practice in life is to be able to use that awareness of how much we have the capacity to love and we protect our own to spread it so that we love and protect everybody. My, my question for myself, or what I watch in myself, not even to protect my own, but to protect me, even, in the middle of it. I think we protect our, I protect myself instinctively, 
I protect my own instinctively, protect my own family, my own community, my own connections. But what my, my, my dilemma is, is, first of all, I think that's wired into me. I think the challenge is to see past it, be able to see it all as family. But I want to also be able to use it, because I think it's what really fires up that desire to take care of the whole world as if they were family. That that ability to love tremendously and feel tremendous dismay, to mourn tremendously. I think ultimately we all have the same kind of heart. Amechad, levechad. We all have one heart, one people. When you look at that picture of um, those women sitting in Siberia, you feel for them. You don't even know who they are, if it's their kin. It's all of our kin. I've been saying to people, I think it's, I, I take great faith in um, whatever faith I take or hold or trust. I have, actually, a certain amount of hope because this is what I think. I think if any of us opened the door tomorrow morning and found a basket on the front step, Remember all the cartoons that you've seen in your life where someone's opened the door, there's a basket on the front step and it has a baby in it. And it says, take care of this, please, I can't do it. And there's always some story about it. But, you know, I think if any of us, men and women, were to open the door tomorrow morning and find a baby in a basket on the front step that was crying with a note that said, take care of it, we would pick it up, wouldn't we? We would not stop to say, wait a minute, do I recognize it? Whose is it? Uh, what ethnicity is it? Um, what's the matter with it? Is it a good baby, not a good baby? It's inconvenient, I have to go to work. We wouldn't do that, any of us. We would pick it up. We would pick it up. We would take care of it. We would soothe it. We would calm it. We'd probably cry. We'd probably burst out into tears, wouldn't we? Somebody leave a baby on our doorstep to take care of, and I don't know if, if it, I don't you know maybe I wouldn't raise it myself in my house. You know, it's, maybe I'd find the right age person. Maybe I'd look around in my community, but I wouldn't put it down until I had fed it and calmed it and taken care of it, changed its clothes, given it a bath, made sure it took a nap. And we, any of us would have done that. So I've had this vision of what if we could open the door tomorrow and instead of seeing a baby in a basket on the doorstep, we would see the whole world as a baby in a basket. Because it's crying. It hasn't been fed. It hasn't been changed. And it's wet and it's cold. And it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a house to live in. Most of it. More people than not. More people than do, do not have adequate shelter. About 70% of the world not adequately sheltered, 50% not adequately fed. It's crying, it's cold, and no one's taking care of it. And somehow or another, I am depending on the fact that enough of us together could keep ourselves clear enough that when we opened the door, what we would not see is the road to work, but we'd see that there's a world out there. 
that requires something from us. So that's actually what I think is the message. I, I don't know what to do about the parochial except to really keep myself aware of the, to allow myself to make space for everyone else's parochial, that everybody else is frightened for what they recognize as their kin. But, and somehow to trust that at some point we'll all adopt each other in some way. So we will, um, so that we'll all go to church together in the morning, whether or not it's in the same, maybe it doesn't have to be a church, maybe it could be this place, maybe, but some place, we'll get together with our neighborhood and we'll say, let's sit for a minute, let's say, really glad it got to be morning again, glad I'm here, glad it's another day, take care of yourself, what should we worry about today, let's worry about it together, go in peace, have a good day. I keep saying to people all around that uh, um, it's part of the uh, evening liturgy that I know to say, uh, um, I hope I lie down in peace and wake up in peace, but that's not a parochial hope. Everybody wants to lie down in peace and wake up in peace. That's really what metta is about. It's really wishing it for everybody that we lie down in peace and wake up that way. So it's way after 11. I'm sorry about that. So, oh, the end of Brett. Very fast, the end of Brett. Brett had sat for a week. I'm sorry. Thank you, Miriam. Um, Brett had sat for a week, and I met him when he told me that story. And he said, I've been here a week. I hadn't met him because it was a week-long retreat. There were two other teachers. I met him on the last day. He said, this changed my life. I had no idea. I've never meditated before. I had no idea what I was getting into. I read about meditation in Time magazine. I see it's in, so I came. So, and he said, he said, this is what happened to me. He said, I want to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? And then he told me that story. He said, four years ago this happened to me. And I so was traumatized by it. I could not think about it for four years. And then every time it came up in my mind, I put it away in the back of my mind. I said, I don't want to think about that. He said, I sat down the first night. All of a sudden, there's my story. And he said, I'm not going to get through this week without that story being there. Clearly, it's on its way out. No, I have nothing else to do here, so I might as well allow that story to be out. So he said, and the story started to roll in my mind like a movie. And each time that story came up in my mind, I would go through, I would shake, just like I did then. It was so traumatic to me. My whole body would shake, and I'd get all cold. And I would think to myself, just like a movie, he said, I said, he said, I said, he said, I said. whole movie would run through, I'd be all shaking. Then I'd take a few breaths, and I'd relax, and I'd think, oh, phew, finished. And then just a little bit later, come back again, the same story. Reruns and reruns and reruns. And he said, finally, he said, I just let it run. And then he said, yes, day before yesterday. He said, finally, that whole story ran through me, and I just sat there, and I was okay. And he said, I felt very much better. You know, I knew it was like being in a movie. It was like seeing a movie. But I had seen the movie so many times, I knew where the bad parts were. <laughs> and I knew the end of the movie, so I knew it was going to be all right. So I was okay. He said, so I, day before yesterday, he said, I was much better. I could see the whole movie. He said, yesterday I was sitting, and the movie ran again. And I could see the whole movie again. And he said, 
And at some point in the movie, he said, it occurred to me that that person with the gun, he was where he was, doing what he was doing, because he had had the life that he had had. And that I was in the place where I was because I had had the life that I had had. And if I had had his life, and he had had my life, I would be in his place, and he would be in mine. He said, and at that point, I forgave him. And then I was really better. And then he said to me, you think that's an insight? (laughs) (laughs) So, let's sit one minute on behalf of the world. It is on behalf of the world whether or not we dedicate it. But why don't we do this with a formal dedication of practice? May whatever merit we accrue by coming together in the way that we do to practice and study together, may whatever merit we accrue be given freely and generously on behalf of all beings in the world. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.